Welcome. You're listening to the Gideon Warrior Radio Network. Look for us on TalkShoe.com. Type in keyword Gideon Warrior Network. And you can find us and other Israelite speakers at ChristianAmericanMinistries.com and AngloIsraelTruth.com. Please remember, your free will gifts and offerings help us to continue laboring in the vineyard. Please consider visiting our support page. We thank you for visiting our network and sites. It is our prayer you'll be edified by them. Here's the message, and thanks for listening. In this part three of the series, What's Wrong with America? It is my prayer to aid the listener in one's understanding of how God's laws pertain to their personal relationship to God. We've already discussed in our previous messages that great gift of God to his creation, that wonderful attribute of being made in his image and likeness, and that free will or free agency God's children inherently possess. This liberty gift is the essence of his divine order, and true liberty and divine law are inseparable and provide the only clear, unfettered protection of the individual in his responsibility to God's command. James, speaking to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, admonished them to look into the continue therein, not as a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the perfect law of liberty. James 1.25, advising further to speak and do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty at James 2.12. Now how shall we go about being a doer and not a forgetful hearer? The modern church world has taught you to be a sinner. That's right. Let that sink in a little bit. What passes for the most part in the religious church world today is that you are all worthless, a sinner. Confess your sins and say that sinner's prayer. Surrender yourself to Jesus Christ and accept him as your personal Savior. Well, that's mighty big of you now, isn't it? Suppose I were to tell you you ought to humble yourself before Christ and repentance for your sins and go and sin no more. Remember, sin is the transgression of the law at 1 John 3, 4. In the true law of liberty, you are not free or shall we say at liberty to violate the divine law. In other words, no divine law, no transgression, no sinner, no need to surrender. Just accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. To say he is your personal Savior implies that he is no one else's Savior. The fact that God endowed his children with that free will, free agency attribute of God is in no way to be construed as a license to do anything one so chooses. Individual liberty is regulated by divine law. Its application protects, preserves, and defends that liberty from one individual to another. Ensuring justice is available for all. Let's analyze the assumptions available to us in determining what your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is to be. To establish the foundation for our assumptions, we will begin with clearly documented and established divine laws recorded at Deuteronomy 6, 4-5. God commands his children, Israel, shall have no other gods before him, and shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the personal relationship Christ spoke of as the greatest commandment. God's children, from the time of hearing these commands at Mount Sinai, have known them as the first part of the Ten Commandments, and they have maintained as a record these foundational divine laws. Further, Moses recorded God's divine law pertaining to God's children's relationship to their brother or their kinsman in the flesh at Leviticus 19.18, and I quote, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, that being the brother or kinsman or fellow Israelite, as thyself, end quote. God's children have known and understand this principle also, 
as the second part of the Ten Commandments. Therefore, it should come as no surprise that Christ, God in the flesh, would cite these two principles as the greatest of all commandments. It is these two principles that are your personal relationship with God or Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul explains further how to fulfill the principles of the law at Romans 13, 8-10, and I quote, For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, and thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other command, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. End quote. Now, did Paul just misunderstand what Jesus was saying? After all, most of the church world today say that Paul preached that the law is done away in Christ. Well, why then did Paul cite the last five commands in his dissertation on the principle of loving one's neighbor? The short answer is no. Paul did not misunderstand Jesus and therefore understood the law had not at all been done away with. The observance of these laws in your relationship with Jesus Christ is essential to one's kingdom citizenship. Most of God's children, and indeed the churches of the land, seem to acknowledge that these laws are in continued existence and to some extent their application without giving them the full and broad meaning as pertains to the true child of God's personal relationship to God and that of his neighbor or his brother or kinsman in the flesh. The extraordinary, unobserved relationship began when God commissioned his people. He said, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of Egypt and the house of bondage, Exodus 22-3, and to these that were present, this was unquestionable. So what we have here is assumption number one, the credibility of this assumption to God's people, the Israelites, after having seen the seemingly inexplicable hand of God in their redemptive deliverance from Egypt was, shall we say, forever etched in stone. It was a testament of God to all other peoples of the earth. And Jesus Christ was later to affirm this testament to the true God, his people, as a relationship to him when he declared, no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill. And I came that my sheep might have life and have it more abundantly. The personal relationship command of God is broken by a multitude of earthly loves, pride of position, wealth, power, pleasure, etc. These and many others cause God's people to forget this personal relationship command. When God's people forget him and have all manner of other pursuits before him, judgments for this disobedience has been decreed. Listen as I read the words recorded by Moses at Deuteronomy 8, 19-20. Quote, I testify against thee this day that ye shall surely perish in the nations which the Lord destroyed before your face, so shall ye perish, because ye would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord thy God. End quote. It is clear and evident to any honest child of God that the judgment embodied in Moses' decree is upon America at this time. God's next command in his people's personal relationship pertains to images and idols. He describes what it consists of and of making it into form. And at Deuteronomy 5.8, then at verse 9, he pronounces a decree of judgment for its violation and a decree of mercy for its application. So, assumption number two. There shall follow iniquity to those that hate him, but mercy shall follow to those that love him and keep his command. This, too, is our personal relationship. As these two commands require an unquestionable service to God and God only, 
the iniquity upon this nation of America from generation to generation, it would appear, is self-evident. Our second assumption, I think we can clearly say, has been established as fact. God's third command in one's personal relationship deals with the respect due to God from his people for his redemptive deliverance and their future growth. The taking of God's name in vain is happening in ways his people largely do not acknowledge or consider. God's name is often invoked unworthily. For an example of this, you might like to listen to an earlier message entitled The Blame God Blasphemy and Elections, and also by going to Moses' account of the law of blasphemy at Leviticus 24.10-16. To blaspheme means to attribute to God that which is not agreeable to his nature. God's people take his name in vain as they pray and do not believe, doubt his existence or his creation, and use the name unworthily as some 80 plus percent Americans profess a belief in God but cannot cite the Ten Commandments and are unable to acknowledge or attribute major scriptural tenements or principles to God. Under this command of God in one's quest to understand their personal relationship with God, we are given a pronouncement of judgment for its violation, death. The act of disregarding use of his name in thought, word, or deed, without reverence and honor of his name, is using it in vain, and carries judgment for cursing and death for blasphemy. The fourth command of God in one's personal relationship with him is in keeping his Sabbath. God labored about his creation for six days and rested on the seventh. He passed this principle of labor and rest onto his people in this command, blessing the seventh day as a Sabbath unto the Lord thy God, and he hallowed it. This principle of labor and rest was another sign of God's people. The keeping of the Sabbath day of rest, or the lack thereof, evidences a nation's spiritual health, as this Sabbath law should have a much greater meaning for those people. His command was to be applied also to six years of work and a seventh year holy, providing a year of rest for the land, a year of rest for the laborer, a year of release of debt, culminating in seven weeks of years providing for a great jubilee or release. And so important is this Sabbath in one's personal relationship with God, Isaiah sought to remind God's people of it also at chapter 58. Personal and national observance and reverence toward that gift of rest and obedience to God is paramount in personal and national prosperity. These four commands, when properly applied, have the effect of causing what French economist Alexis de Tocqueville reported to his countrymen more than a century and a half ago, that America's churches were aflame with righteousness. Is this a result of America having been fed with the heritage of Jacob that Isaiah 58 referred to? Alexis de Tocqueville saw and Isaiah admonished was a people, if I dare say, who were on fire for God, loving him, worshiping him with all of their minds and hearts and their souls. And when this exists, the next command in one's personal relationship with God becomes self-evident as when God's people truly love, honor, and obey their God, the children will love, honor, and obey their parents. This honor of the father and mother has been tied by God to the length of thy days. Later in this series, when we take many of the circumstances involved in violating God's various laws, you will see how this provision of honoring parents is of high priority to the evil ones Christ said, teach the doctrines of men to become twofold more sons of hell than themselves. Now these first five commands in your personal relationship with God are just the foundation as Christ summed up the greatest commandment. He quickly followed with the second, thou shalt 
love thy neighbor as thyself. Many upon coming to the conclusion of the failure of these laws or principles operation will endeavor to make efforts to make them applicable in their personal lives. However, while doing so, they will often become conflicted as they are more keenly aware of the failure in the national administration. But we must remember God's children have a unique and special position with their God. It is not impossible for a single God-fearing individual to be used of God for the purpose of God, that being to redirect or deliver or warn them from the impending calamity for failure to put into operation again the statutes in our national administration. It is the duty of God's children to acknowledge the righteousness of these laws and condemn their violation, witnessing and attesting to God's judgment being pronounced and activated for their violation. What we've reviewed from God's word in previous messages, the individual is charged with personal responsibility to God as he set before his people life and good and death and evil. He commanded his people, therefore, to choose life. The requirements of the law are upon the individual. National sins or curses follow individual sins or transgressions of the laws. Individuals calling attention to these principles of righteousness is as necessary in our personal relationship with God as one does the will of God. He will subsequently therefore demand that the national administration restore God's laws so the national body will not impede the blessings and prosperity promised. Upon the conclusion of God's commands to his people in their personal relationship to God, we find that God's command concerning one's personal relationship with one's neighbor, or the brother or kinsman in the flesh, even to the alien or stranger as may be among them from time to time. This sixth command in your personal relationship with God as pertains to loving thy neighbor as thyself is that thou shalt not kill. Now remember, when we started this series, I said in concluding the series, I intended to show how God's people in America are violating the laws of God and the Ten Commandments, the principles embodied therein, as well as many of the other laws long before Sinai. Some of the violations are known and some are unknown, both on the personal level as well as the national. These Ten Commands are to govern personal conduct. There is no need for administering agencies concerning personal conduct. The legislation, if you will, has already been enacted into law. When this personal conduct law is abridged or violated, the judgment must be pronounced and administered. The judgments also were established in God's perfect law of liberty. To violate the last five commands would be to violate the principle they embody and to love the neighbor as thyself. If one should violate this sixth command and the body of people have no mechanism for enforcement or judgments pronouncement by these acts of aggression recognized by these last five commands, you could see, would see that it could result in nothing short of genocide for God's people. Neither the individual or the mechanism God established, that being the body of people and or the administrative body, are at all authorized to establish the punishment. It has already been decreed in the perfect law of liberty. The statute written for the thou shalt not kill is found in Genesis 9.6. Whoso sheddeth blood's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Remember, like so much of what we've been reviewing, this statute is long before Sinai. Moses records the statute in further detail at Numbers 35.24-33. And due to time, we must not go there together at this time. Continuing quickly on, the nations, God's people, are promised to form, have one law, one judgment, or punishment. 
and to fail to administer would pollute the land of their habitation with the blood of the slain. The law says it must be cleansed by the blood of him that shed it. The law elevates life and respect for it. The 35th chapter also covered unintentional murder, sanctuary cities, a term of such refuge, etc. Additionally, at verse 32, the word satisfaction is number 3724. It's a variation of number 3722, and in both cases it means to cover over so as to forgive by ransom or redemptive sum of money, cleanse, disannul, or forgive. The avenger may not receive anything in place of. Only the blood of the slain can be cleansed by him that shed it. In this statute of divine law, the nation and the revenger is blameless in the executing the judgment, as blood defileth the land. As God looks upon the land of America, one must wonder, does he see blood from sea to shining sea? God's people must remember it is a serious offense against God's creation of life to arbitrarily take it. The forfeiture of life for life is a powerful motivator against such egregious offense. Being made in God's image is to defend life. It is a survival mechanism. Consider this. Once born, is it not true that every act of the giver of life, in the sense of the parental term only in this case, is for the protecting the young infant life? These life preservation acts are continued out of infancy into childhood and teenage years and beyond, in fact and at some point the child itself will exemplify its own survival. God's knowledge of this desire for preserving one's life is the very purpose for the laws and the judgments, to preserve life, minimizing and deterring those who might succumb to a depraved nature and devalue theirs or that of someone else's. God's children who have become desensitized to the perfection of the execution of the divine law concerning capital offenses and punishment by death and erroneously conclude such justice is archaic and has no substantive effect or deterrence lacks understanding of this basic human nature and in reality rejects God's supreme intelligence and knowledge of his creation. His law executes this judgment swiftly, calling for the executed to be removed and buried the same day. Deuteronomy 21, 22-23 The law of God concerning the command not to kill has a number of other judgments which may be rendered uh, for murder by accident, premeditated, unlawful entry, and even for those perpetuated and not discovered by witnesses. These all are recorded in Exodus 21 and 22, also Deuteronomy 21. In closing this sixth command in your personal relationship with God, we should confirm Jesus did not do away with this law as it pertains to loving your neighbor as yourself. In fact, in Matthew 5.22, he equated anger with one's brother worthy of the judgment for killing. What Christ does is reveal the extent of the principle embodied in the statute. In law, this is what is referred to as the spirit of the law. In other words, the foundation for and or the legislative intent of the law. In essence, Christ revealed another legal term and that of constructive intent. Listen as I quote from Black's Law Dictionary about constructive intent. Quote, It exists where one should have reasonably expected or anticipated a particular result. The example given, one does an act which is willful and wanton, resulting in an injury to another, it can be said he constructively intended harm. End quote. Christ's words in Matthew 5:21 to 24 caused me to consider why he equated anger with a brother without cause to be worthy of the judgment for one who committed murder. 
It seemed harsh, unjust, or unreasonable. But the first sentence says, anger without cause is worthy of the judgment. And then describes differing judgments for saying raka, which is number 4469 at Strong's Greek Concordance, which is to say empty one, worthless, as a term of utter vilification. I then went to Webster's 1828 to define vilification. It meant to debase or degrade one's character, and it literally rolled me over. God's children, his chosen, are not empty or worthless, and are not to unjustly or without cause debase or degrade their character, or, as he said, they shall be subject to the council. Therefore, an inward desire or intent to destroy or degrade one of God's children for no cause is equivalent to murder. Now that should be enough on this statute for now in one's understanding of their personal relationship with God. Next we visit the seventh commandment in this personal relationship. Many of God's children have forgotten this law or sought to blot it from any discussion or contemplation. It most likely is because of the severity of the judgment it carries, found at Leviticus 20.10. The putting to death the adulteress and the adulterer is not the picture painted for most by the church world today for such transgression. Because of this, respect for womanhood and motherhood, the neighborly regard for the sanctity of the woman, is disregarded as nearly... 60% of marriages since the turn of the century have ended in divorce. Most of those due to the unlawful lies on of men and women taking others' wives and husbands. Young maidens are to betrothed to one, and the divine law protects her as already under the marriage contract. Should a man violate the betrothal, his life shall be required. Death is also prescribed for acts of sodomy and carnal engagements with beasts. Solomon was once asked by God what he could do for him. And Solomon asked for wisdom to rule so great a nation as God's people. Now listen to the words of wisdom to his son at Proverbs 6.32. But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. Chapter 7 continues the charge and is very enlightening as well. Continuing on quickly, you see, in your relationship with God, you are required to maintain the sanctity of the home. Virtuous, prosperous, and healthy homes permeate the nation. Declining moral virtues and disregard of the home's sanctity continues to be at the core of declining national status. Ignorance of or ignoring is not a virtue. This law was established to guard against such corruption of the life-giving force of his people. At Matthew 5.28, Jesus again expounds on the principle or the legislator intent for the law in saying, quote, I say to you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her committeth adultery with his heart. End quote. This definition of the principle convicts millions of men and women as he further drives home the point by convicting the heart. He tells us later in the book of Matthew how the wicked one, the terror, cleans the outside of the cup and carefully chooses their words, but their hearts are far from them. Well, when God's people again put their hearts right with God and towards their neighbor, they will once again refrain from the desire to do evil in his sight. Further, Jesus taught the man who puts away or divorces his wife, save for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. The judgment of the law of adultery is death. God's children are not to cause another to sin. 
It appears clear that Jesus is expounding on the principle of this law, expected it rather essential and valuable in your personal relationship with God and your neighbor. As we continue on in this journey, understanding what is wrong with America, and we begin to realize that the personal relationship with Jesus our church world today encourages the young Christian to endeavor to attain, is leaving a whole lot of what's required behind. The preceding commands reviewed thus far have centered on the relationship and reverence for God and the sanctity of life and the ability to produce life of you and your neighbor. Next is that command protecting all the goods that the Lord blesses you with and your neighbor from one of the most pernicious violations of the divine law, that being, thou shalt not steal, the eighth commandment. I say pernicious because it has the effective quality of killing destroying and injuring. The myriad of examples we won't endeavor to illuminate at this time, but we will as we wrap up the series. Again, God's children have forgotten the principle or the legislative intent of this command. Every single aspect of human activity that labors tirelessly to secure something without paying the legitimate price required to obtain or intending to secure from one, which is to their loss, to add to the statue of another, is stealing. We might do well to take time to define stealing as it might not be defined as you believe it is. Webster's 28 defines steal as to take or carry away the personal goods of another to constitute theft or stealing. The taking must be with an intent to take what belongs to another without his consent. And the secondary definition there says to gain or win by address or gradual and imperceptible means and it cites the story of Absalom in 2 Samuel 15, a story which I encourage you to go to. This secondary definition is used by wicked men with near impunity and bodaciousness. The judgment accompanying this statute varies in range from restoration, restitution, servitude, other penalties, and death. The principle embodied in this command is applicable to any industry, ag, uh, industrial, financial, as this divine law and judgments impose severe penalties and all are recorded throughout the book of, of Moses. Now, lest we should forget, Jesus taught the same at Matthew 19.18. Now, after setting the divine laws for respecting life, family, and possessions, God secured the name and reputation of one's neighbor. The ninth command forbids the bearing of false witnesses against one's neighbor. A nod, a secret handshake, a code of words, and other bodily gestures can secure a false witness. God's children have lost the principle of this statute, it would appear. Making false oaths and using false or fraudulent means or informations are promulgating fraudulent claims while the good report goes unheard as Exodus 23.2 testifies. Judgment could include death to a false testimony, Deuteronomy 19.18-20, and allowed the adjudicator to do unto him as he thought to do unto thy brother, causing those which remain to hear and fear, and shall no more commit such evil, at Deuteronomy 5.20. Thou shalt not raise a false report, put not thy hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. What about Jesus, you say? Yes, he thought it an important command, and did so likewise at Matthew 19:18, and summed up the judgment for the principle at Matthew 12:36. and I quote, But I say unto you, every idle word men speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment, end quote. Finally and quickly, this tenth command reveals the state of the union, if you will, covetousness disregards. 
The principle here is that what God's people have is bestowed by God. It is not the prerogative of man to covet or take from one's neighbor as for an unjust gain. God has given to his people the inheritance of Jacob in the land forever, which the covetous, wicked one devises a myriad of schemes to disenfranchise them from. Jesus warned of and expressed the principle simply as to beware of covetousness as man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. These are the principles of the Ten Commands given at Sinai, and they constitute one's personal relationship to God, their neighbor, their brother, their kinsman in the flesh. These are the principles written on the hearts of his people. These are the commandments on America's lips while their hearts are far from him. Could this be what's wrong with God's people in America? Stay tuned for part four. Thanks again to Pastor Peters for his fight of faith and this opportunity to minister with words unto the children of the new covenant as Hebrews 8.8 8 informed us of. This is Doug Nelson trusting you will hear these words one day. Well done, thou good and faithful servant.